All right, last time we were together, we finished up the book of Joel. So uh, next in line is the book of Amos. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of Amos. Amos is the shepherd prophet. Uh, he is one of the prophets that prophesied during the divided kingdom. So sometimes when we study the word, we, we need to have some of the historical background so we know the setting. So Amos is prophesying there's a northern kingdom. That kingdom is called Israel. Uh, the king there is Jeroboam II. And there is a, a southern kingdom as well. And the southern kingdom, that king was Uzziah. That should sound familiar to you. If you've ever read the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6 says, In the year that king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. So Isaiah is a contemporary of Amos, and as is Hosea. Uh, in the Bible, you have what we call speaking of prophets and writing prophets. So you don't have a book written by Elijah or Elisha or Nathan or some of the other prophets that we see in the pages of the history of Israel. So those guys are still doing their job. They're out speaking as well. So these things are happening at the same time that Amos is being called. The Bible tells in verse 1, Amos 1.1, 1, 1, it says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, he was of the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, if you were the people receiving this book, you would know what earthquake. You are much later, and you will hear lots of theories, but just so we can be clear, nobody knows. I love theories. Theories are cool. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe it's a, the... No one knows. He doesn't tell us. But the people who receive the book, they know. Right? We often, nowadays, I'll give you an example of how sometimes we allow this to <coughs> trip us up. You'll have books that we don't know the author to. For example, Hebrews, right? We don't know who wrote Hebrews. I know some people say it's Paul. Some people say this, that, and the other thing. What? Okay. <laughs> There's lots of opinions. But let me tell you, when the author of Hebrews delivered the book, the people who received it knew who he was. You guys get what I'm saying? So uh, one of the things we find in the, the ancient manuscripts is the first part of the book that gets messed up is the front pages. You guys ever had a cover fall off a book or lose the, uh, the, the front page? And you saw oh, there's nothing on there, but who wrote it? Yeah, that's how that happens. And then we go, well, we don't know who he is, but... It doesn't mean nobody knew who he was. We don't now. We don't know the earthquake. But it doesn't mean there wasn't an earthquake. We just, we're, we're several thousand years later, right? Can you remember all the earthquakes in your lifetime? Me neither. Some of you. Californians might be able to. Californians date things by earthquakes. Okay, so when we look at the book of Amos, here's a couple of things I want you to hold on to. It's divided into three parts. First, you have what would be called the Oracle of the Nations. 
or maybe judgment of the nations. In the judgment of the nations or the oracle of the nations, there are eight indictments against multiple nations. God, eight, eight uh, judgments that God's delivering to the nations. And what you can't tell by just reading the words is if you follow the cities on a map or the nations that, that God's talking about, it, it makes a sphere working its way ever tighter to the last two. And the last two indictments are Judah and Israel. And the reason for that is God had called the nation to be a light and an example to the nations around them. And rather, they had become just like the nations around them. So you have this indictment that's zeroing in or targeting in to Israel ultimately. The second part of the book is three sermons. Three sermons uh, written by Amos containing warnings and woes. Woe unto you, woe unto you, watch out. That's, uh, that's going to run from chapters 3 to 6. And then the final section is five specific visions. And the book ends with the hope of the return of the nation of Israel back uh, into the kingdom of God. So you, anytime we have these prophetic books that are dealing with God's judgment ultimately being poured out on the nations, we'll see that, and on Israel, there is always, every single time, a part of that that is about the hope of restoration. Every time Jesus spoke of his crucifixion, he also spoke of his resurrection. Every time there was judgment, and, and every time judgment comes, it's been deserved. No one was ever judged undeservingly by God. There has always been the hope of restoration. The hope of renewal. And so the same thing is true as we go through the book of Amos today. So let's take a look at it. From Amos's own testimony, we read in Amos 7, verse 14, Amos said to Amaziah, I am no prophet nor a prophet's son. So he was not one of the traditional prophets. He's not a, he was not at the school of prophets. He didn't grow up as a young man desiring to become a prophet. He was a shepherd. He says, I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. It had nothing to do with Amos's schooling. It had nothing to do with his qualifications. It had everything to do with his call. Who called him? God. And we see in Scripture, God's commandments are his enablements. I know a lot of times people today think, God can't use me because A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Whatever our list of issues is. But God used Amos, who was just a shepherd and a guy who picked wild figs, sycamore figs. Those are wild figs in the wilderness. He was not the head of anybody, did not have the biggest herd he was not a famous herdsman. He, he had nothing other than God calling him and telling him to go. And so he's going to be obedient to that call. He was a, a shepherd, a poor man doing common work in a poor 
area in uh, uh, Tekoa. A common man doing common work in a common neighborhood. And the Bible tells us, uh, Tekoa, if you remember it, Joab went there to find a wise woman to talk to David about reconciling with his son Absalom. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son, built it. He built Tekoa as one of the ten walled cities or fortresses. Uh, the name Amos, it means burden. So he is uh, a man carrying a burden. We find that his time is the time of Uzziah. Now, you guys got to remember Uzziah. Uzziah was a great king until he became great in his own eyes. Do you remember the story? Uzziah was a great king of Judah. And then he started thinking how great he is and why do I have to have all these priests give offerings and stuff for me? I'm just going to do it myself. And so he barges into the temple and barges in to make his own offering and barges in to go to the Holy of Holies. And while he's standing there, he becomes a leper. And so he rushes out of the temple and finishes his reign as the leper king, Uzziah, who was great, the Bible says, until he became great in his own eyes. Jeroboam in the north in Israel is a king where, where <clears throat> the northern kingdom is having just an incredible economic boon. Man, everything's good. Everything's going super well. Everybody's really happy about the direction. There's just one problem. Their eyes are not on the prize in any way, shape, or form. Their eyes instead are on themselves and on their wealth. And so we see uh, this as the time frame. You're looking at uh, the 8th century B.C., 790 to 740 is a period of time. Here are the details of the message. One, we're going to look at the first two chapters, the sovereignty of God. Who is God of the nations? <clears throat> doesn't matter if the nations acknowledge him as God. Who, whose is the world and the fullness thereof? What does the Bible say? The world and the fullness thereof, that belongs to the Lord God Almighty. It's all his. He is sovereign over it all. We'll see that in the judgment of the nations. Then we see that there's going to be an end for Israel. Israel's going to be destroyed by the Assyrian kingdom, and Amos is going to foretell it. He's going to tell them it's a judgment for sin. Because over and over again, the Lord has called out to them, but they have not returned. And so it is described as the day of the Lord. We should be familiar with that phrase from the book of Joel. The day of the Lord is when God brings judgment against someone, some nation, <clears throat> which usually involves the end of that monarchy and the setting up of another. The Bible talks about a great day of the Lord, the last day of the Lord. When all the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. When Jesus Christ rules and reigns. The day of the Lord will be the end of the rule of everyone else in the world and the beginning of the rule of Christ. So that will be the final day of the Lord. And then the last thing that he's going to talk about is Israel's future hope and restoration. Ultimately, their future hope is in Messiah and the restoration as God draws the elect from the four corners of the earth. So let's take a look at the judgment of the nations. I only have 42 pages to go, so we should be fine. 
Verse 2, and he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Now, Carmel is oftentimes considered prophetically the, the highest peak. So it's like Carmel sits above the nation and is, is watching all these things happening. And so what's happening is Carmel is, is uh, uh, you have weeping, mourning from the shepherds. And you have withering of Carmel, the idea that uh, uh, the oppressed, the poor of the nation, and the highest peak can all see the sin that it's surrounding this whole area. The things that are dividing the people from the Lord God. So he is roaring like a lion, like C.S. Lewis would talk about in the Chronicles of Narnia, like Aslan. He has come to bring his word of judgment. And when God brings his word of judgment, there's a call to repentance. But there's also the date when you've gone past the ability to repent and now judgment is imminent. And so we'll see these things as we take a look. He's going to begin with Damascus of verse 3. Thus says the Lord, <clears throat> for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. All the judgments are going to start that way. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four. It's a, it's a poetic way of saying there's been all these things that have been piling up and the last one has occurred. So he says, I will not revoke the punishment. These judgments that are coming down from Amos are final. And every one of them will see the fulfillment uh, happening against the nation for which it's been given. We'll discuss that a little bit as we get to He's going to, one, talk about the judgment, okay? Every one of them is going to begin for three transgressions and for four. So you've filled the bowls of wrath, and now God is pouring them out. And then he's going to say, why? What was the cause? And every time he goes to the cause, he's going to talk about what was the, the straw that broke the camel's back. You guys know the phrase? So what was the straw that broke the camel's back? What was the part? What was the last offense? What was the last offense that God is holding up uh, to say that he's going to bring his judgment? So he says, they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So his root cause is that they had um, attacked a particular part of the nation of Israel and had had no mercy. They had had no mercy. And so the Lord says in verse 4, I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus, that which holds the gate shut, and cut off the inhabitants of the valley of Avon, that means the valley of wickedness, and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden, the house of pleasure. And the people of Syria will go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Now he begins, again, the root cause is this uh, restraining uh, or not holding back uh, judgment, but pouring out uh, total wrath on the people of Israel. In 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 32, it says, In those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazael defeated them through the territory of Israel, from the Jordan eastward all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, Reubenites, uh, Manassites, Aror, which is in the valley of Arnon, that is Gilead, 
and Bashan. So we're going to talk about this character, Hazael, a little bit so we can understand. But the issue is they were so brutal that God said, this judgment is going to come and I'm not going to turn. So because of the brutality, the imagery that is used, <clears throat> we know in 2 Kings, uh, 2 Kings chapter 8, if you guys want to go there, we're going to read a few verses. 2 Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 7, we're talking about Elisha. You remember Elijah has his victory with the 400 priests of Baal. He goes, runs away, runs into Jezebel. He decides he's going to quit, runs and hides in a cave. You guys remember the story? God comes to Elijah and says to Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah says, well, I have been faithful, but I'm the only one left. And God says, no, I have 5,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He's going to call Elijah out of there, and he's going to tell Elijah to anoint the, the leadership that's coming up in Syria. And then after Elijah is taken up into heaven in the fiery chariot, Elisha is going to be pursued uh, by a man named Hazael. Sound familiar? Hazael is mentioned in the scripture. 2 Kings 8, verse 7. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick, and it was told him, The man of God has come here. And the king said to Hazael, Take a present with you and go meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying whether or not I will recover of the sickness. So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camel loads. So he took a lot of presents, right? And when he came and he stood before him, he said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to say, Shall I recover from the sickness? So Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me he will certainly die. Well, that seems weird. And so he fixed his gaze. So Elisha starts staring at Haziel, just staring at him. And it, it be, stares at him for so long, it starts to become uncomfortable. And it says, he stared at him until he was embarrassed. And then the man of God wept. So Elisha starts crying. And Hazael says to him, why does my Lord weep? And Elisha says, because I know the evil you will do to the people of Israel. You will set fire to their fortress you will kill their young men with the sword and dash into pieces their children, the little ones. You will rip open the bellies of pregnant women. And Hazael said, what am I? Was your servant a dog that I would do such things? And Elisha said, the Lord has shown me you will become king of Syria. So he departed from Elisha, came to his master, the king, Ben-Hadad. And Ben-Hadad said, what did he say? And he said, well, he said, you will certainly recover. And then he soaked a towel in water and held it over his face and suffocated him. So Ben-Hadad would have got better, but he didn't. Hazael killed him and becomes king. And when he becomes king, he does all these horrible things. Uh, he does all these horrible things to Gilead. And the Lord says to Damascus, which is the kingdom of Syria... Because of this, this, this judgment is going to come upon you. This judgment is going to be poured out. I will 
send out fire. What's the consequence? Well, there will be people who die. There will be captivity. All of this is fulfilled by Tilgath-Pileser III, the king of Assyria. So most of these judgments that God says against these nations will be fulfilled when the Assyrian kingdom comes down and conquers these nations in a circle until they get to Israel. This is God's re uh, removing his hand of protection. Now, you know this same circle. I just want you to remember, the same circle. It goes, 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 bink, gets to Israel. Israel gets taken out. And then they go down to Judah. You remember this story? They go down to Judah. And the Shenechereb has his Rabshakeh go out. I like to say that, Rabshakeh. He goes out and he says, he says to, the, to Judah, no one can save you from my hand. All these other places we've been, they all said their gods were going to deliver them. No one can deliver you from my hands. Remember Hezekiah opens it before the Lord and says, Lord, look what they're saying about you. All the people, yeah, what's in the reading today? All the people go to sleep. They wake up the next day and the army's gone. They were all starving, and now there's all the food that the army left behind. Because God doesn't require a lot of time or a lot of people to deliver. It wasn't Judah's time yet. So this, these prophecies are all taking place. And that judgment is zeroing in, uh, coming toward uh, uh, Israel. The next one's Gaza. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four... I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people and delivered them up to Edom. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza and it, will be and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and from him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Anybody run into a Philistine lately? more Philistines no more Philistines what was the root cause they carried into exile an entire people and delivered them to Edom now we're going to see when we look at the judgment against Edom <clears throat> and a couple of the other players that what's involved is a treachery breaking an oath so the treachery means that there had been a treaty of some sort and in some way, they, these three nations are all going to work together. They betray part of the treaty, and they, they deliver those people that they had made a treaty with into exile. And God says, That's, that was it. That's the last one. So I'm done. Now, probably the treaty goes all the way back to David. Maybe you don't remember, but David had several... Um, Battles, obviously, with Philistines, but he also had worked together with Philistines. You remember? Remember the whole acting crazy bit where he, he acted crazy to get out of a deal that he had with the Philistines? And so a lot of people think that what occurred was there's a treaty from back then, and it, they, they betrayed the treaty, and that, that's the cause. Or what we know is what the scripture says. You delivered into exile a whole people, and for that... That was your last straw. So, same thing. The Philistines are going to meet 
the kingdom of Assyria, and the kingdom of Assyria is going to utterly demolish them. It's going to start with Assyria. It's going to go on to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and finally be completed at Alexander the Great. But after that, there's no more. They are totally cut off. They will be totally gone. Okay, then we go to verse 9. We have the judgment against Tyre. (coughs) Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up uh, whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of the brotherhood. You see the similarity? Same thing, only now you get a little bit more of the, of the puzzle. Uh, they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Now I want you to realize if we th- just, just hold all these things we've been talking about in your left hand and let me put something new in your right hand. The nation of Judah is going to be conquered by Babylon 150 years later. And they're going to be conquered over and over and over again by the Babylonians because they continue to rebel against Babylon when God told them not to. And so there's harsher and harsher penalties. The last penalty against the last king that rebels against Babylon, God says through the prophet to that king, I am removing you because you swore in my name you would obey Babylon. And you broke your promise. So God holds uh, treaties, giving your word, giving promises to people. He holds that in high regard, and he expects people to keep their vows. Does the Bible say that? Does the Bible tell us that we're supposed to honor our vows? Uh, We as a nation, how have we done with that? Probably not great, right? Probably not great. And so... Just like that, we see, <clears throat> we see the judgment um, come out uh, for Tyre. Uh, you did not remember the covenant, so I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall uh, devour her strongholds. And so uh, broken treaties were a big part of their history, and you'll ultimately see that all accomplished at the time of Alexander the Great. So you're going to have battles through... Uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, but uh, when we get uh, past the Medo-Persians to the Greeks, then Tyre is going to fall. Tyre falls to Alexander the Great. If you remember, he builds a land bridge out to the island. That's how he beats them. So, and so we see God's judgment ultimately uh, coming. It's, it, it's not... Uh, that judgment which comes instantly, it's a judgment that comes from God lifting his hand uh, of protection off of the nations. The consequence, Tyre will fall in her strongholds. Verse 11, we have the transgressions of Edom. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom <coughs> and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword, cast off all pity. And his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send fire on Timon, and it will devour the strongholds of Basra. So the judgment against Edom is because he pursued his brother. Edom. Edom goes back to who? Esau. Esau had a brother. What was his brother's name? Yeah, did they get along? Jacob and Esau. Today, do they get along? 
No. So because God's saying, look, this has been your attitude. You've always pursued your brother with the sword and cast off pity. So the consequence, I will bring fire on Timon and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. And again, in the, in the judgments of the kingdoms to come, going back to the dream of Daniel, all of these judgments that God gives zeroing into Israel are all, are all going to take place. Remember Daniel's dream? Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, right? So we, we follow the, the head of gold, chest of silver, body and, uh, of bronze, legs of iron, feet, iron mixed with clay. So you have the, the, the depression of value in the kingdoms from gold to iron mixed with clay. And you have the destruction ultimately of all the kingdoms of men. They all have one thing in common. They don't last. Even if they last a really long time, they're not eternal. The Bible says there's a stone that comes out of the heavens, strikes the statue and the legs. It disappears into powder and it grows into the kingdom of God, which will fill the whole earth. So this is the fulfillment of God's judgment on these nations. They're going to be uh, brought by these different kingdoms that are coming into power. Okay, he goes on in verse 13 to talk about, <coughs> excuse me, the Ammonites. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So they used cruelty to have gain. And that particular cruelty was uh, on pregnant women and the death of the unborn. Is that not interesting to you? You think it was around 60 million? Seems a little crazy for three transgressions and for four. Would God be wrong to pour out his judgment on our nation? For three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four. So they had ripped open pregnant women in Gilead. Again, that's where most of these atrocities take place to enlarge their border. So God says, I will kinder a fire in the, in the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle and a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king will go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. So we have the Ammonites. This was something that was always going on. Think about the, the books of the Bible you've been reading. We've been working our way through the Bible in a year. You've already read through Judges. I know when you went through Judges, it was a little rough on you, but we made it. One of the stories we read in Judges was Jephthah. Remember Jephthah? Now, Jephthah went to do battle with who? The Ammonites, who were attacking who? Gilead. Now, what we usually remember the story is Jephthah made a silly vow when he got home, right? But the person, the people he was delivering was Gilead from the cruelty of the Ammonites. Maybe you remember King Saul. King Saul, remember, was rejected by by God as king, and ultimately he and his sons are going to die 
on the battlefield, and they're going to take his bodies, and they're going to fix them on the walls of Bet-Chan. Until what? Someone goes and gets them down. Do you know who it is? The men of Jabesh-Gilead. Well, wait a minute. That sounds familiar. Why does Jabesh-Gilead go get the bodies of Saul and his sons? Why do they take them down from the wall and make sure that they're buried properly? Why do they do that? Because when King Saul first became king, when he was still little in his own eyes, Jabesh-Gilead cried out because the Ammonites were attacking them. And the first war King Saul ever won was to go deliver Gilead from the Ammonites. So here God is saying, look, it's, you hit the end. The cruelty went on, went on, went on, went on. Three became four. I'm done. What's three plus four? What's seven the number of? Completion. Oh, weird. You think it's just random that those numbers are there? You think it's very poetic for sure, but it's there for a reason, right? It is the feeling of when we read the book of Revelation, there's a point in the book of Revelation where it says the bowls of wrath are filled. There's no more room for the transgression of the people. And what happens to those bowls? They get poured out on the earth. Judgment of God when the wretchedness of man reaches its full. So, <clears throat> so you have the people uh, going into exile. <coughs> Excuse me. The king and his princes together. Again, that's going to happen as the Assyrians uh, come through and, and conquer. Then we're going to go chapter 2, 1 through 3. We're doing all the nations except for Judah and Israel. We'll do Judah and Israel next time. So it says in Amos chapter 2, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. And I will cut off the ruler from its midst and kill all its princes with him. So what's the root cause of this judgment? He burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Well, that seems weird. I mean, all the other ones, we have this brutality and all this stuff going on. But Moab's, the, the, the judgment that is the last straw for Moab seems less so, no? I mean, what, what does it matter if you, if you burn the bones of the king? Well, for God, he considers it a crime against humanity because it was offensive to Edom. It was offensive to Edom and they didn't care. They did it just to be cruel. So God would uh, look at it as a crime against humanity. Uh, it's a powerful motivation for God's people to oppose the mistreatment and the neglect of other human beings. 
like those five-year-olds that make our shoes. Right? Or whatever else. I mean, there's no shortages there. So we have become a nation that is only good at purchasing things. We don't make things anymore. And so what we have is wealth, and so that's our place in the world. And so other places in the world that want to get a piece of that pie, well, they will oppress the poor every chance they get in order to gain it. And I don't even know what to tell you to do about it because there's no one who doesn't do it. Your phone, the computer, your clothes, all of it, probably goes back to the oppression of somebody somewhere that is part of this chain of abuse. Now, the thing that that echoes back to me as I look at God's judgment of these nations and that's ultimately going to come through real armies of real other nations conquering them and and ultimately taking them down. But they, they aren't washed from the scene. There are, there are some that are totally removed, but not all of them are totally removed. So they're going to have another day in the sun, right? But what we know about man is that man, when he understands his failures and his struggles and what he's done wrong, we're really quick to, to change and to stop doing that stuff, right? Because we, we, learn we learn from our history, don't we? We don't repeat things over and over and over and over again. It's funny because I have people tell me, especially when we're going through the prophets, because as we're going through the prophets, like every prophet says the same stuff. And so they go, oh, Jackie, come on. They all just say the same stuff. Yeah, that's because we don't learn. They're not talking about the same time. So why do we repeat it over and over and over again? So that we can maybe get it set in our mind. That there, there is a responsibility that we bear to understand, to recognize what, what, what is it that I, I ought to be doing? What should I do about this? You remember the Lord says through the prophet Elijah, he looked to and fro for someone who would stand in the gap. Do you remember what it says next? He didn't find anyone. So he did it. Now we, as followers of Jesus Christ, can recognize he stood in the gap for the broken, the oppressed, the poor, the outcast, right? We can recognize all that thing, all all of those things. So then we need to ask ourselves, am I following him? Will I also stand in the gap? Will I stand in the gap for the oppressed? You see, we're often willing to stand in the gap for those things we don't like, maybe politically or those things that are going on that upset us. And oftentimes the, 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 the things we'll get behind are things that make us feel good. You know, maybe we get something back from it. But Jesus, he always said, why don't you help the poor who can't give you nothing back? You ever walk up, when we were in Oregon going down the beach, there was no shortage of homeless people. They're everywhere. 
there, everyone we saw, I, I, I won't say every homeless person, but every homeless person we saw in Oregon was wasted outside their mind. Every one of them. They were, uh, they're dirty and there's absolutely nothing they can do for me. And oftentimes we will talk ourselves out of doing anything for them. But isn't that like, kind of like the person Jesus said, why don't you do something for them? They can't do nothing for you. You, you give them whatever you give them. Usually we say, oh, they're just going to get high or get wasted. Or I finally started telling myself, well, that's not my problem. God didn't tell me to control their choices. He told me to have compassion. Or maybe it's just simply telling them about Christ or sharing the truth or giving them the coat that you, you have six of them at home. You won't even know you don't have it anymore or whatever. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm just throwing out examples of ways we look in our world. Anybody know that our world looks every bit as bad as this one? We read anything in there that we're not guilty of in some way as a nation. Maybe not us individually, but as a nation, we're guilty of all these things. And so but God's judgment hasn't fallen. We might say that we think some of this is, is the beginning of God's judgment, and maybe it is. But as it comes, as it falls, as these things happen, what is it that God's looking for from us? Is he looking for from us just to lift our heads up to heaven and say, hurry, Jesus, come get me? Or is there some response he wants? Because the scripture, he said, occupy till I come, right? <clears throat> so as we look for the deliverance of the great king, I'll give you a challenge. What can we do? I, I, I think it'd be cool if we tried an experiment. Not very many of us in here. Let's try an experiment this week, see what happens. Take every day. Find someone you know in the church, a believer, another believer. Find someone you know. Don't call them to tell them something bad. Don't call them to tell them something that's wrong. Don't call them to gossip. Call them and encourage them. Every day for a week. Do you know that's biblical? The writer of Hebrews says... Encourage one another daily while it is called today. Is it still called today? Yeah. Having that word of encouragement, being seasoned by salt. I know we are always looking for other things, other ways to empower the church. And lately I've just been thinking about this way, just a personal thing. I'm not the most positive guy in the world, so uh, I'm, on, I'm on the chopping block too. But I've been trying to practice this reality of reaching out to someone every day and encouraging them. And if you're really good at it, reach out to 10 people and give them a word of encouragement every day. And let's see if the world looks any different in a week. Yeah. <laughs> if they don't leave a message. Leave a message and say, I just called to tell you I love you. That sounds like a song. Is that a song? I just called. It's probably a bad song, huh? Yeah. Now everybody's singing that. <laughs> oh, let's go before the Lord.
Why don't you guys stand up with me and we'll close in prayer. <clears throat> Father God, we are so thankful for the work you are doing, Lord. And I know we look at the judgment and the fall of nations and all of these things, and maybe, maybe it makes our hearts heavy. We don't know how we're supposed to respond, what we're supposed to do. And I know, Lord God, your word declares that these things are, are, are a part of what happens in the end. But God, I just pray that we would be a people whose desire is to, uh, to be busy about the work that God's called us to until we see your face. To be busy uh, being that word of encouragement, to be busy being that word of love, to be busy in all these things. And so many times, there's, there's plenty of things wrong. Trust me, I know. Our world is crazy. But maybe one of the ways we get prepared is that we defeat discouragement and rise above. And maybe from that position, we will be able to recognize a right word given in the right season, in the right way, at the right time, to see the Spirit of God move in a powerful way in our land. So God, we just pray that you would pour out your Spirit upon us, guide us, lead us, help us. I pray, Lord, that uh, God, through, uh, through this time, as we consider these things, so we're going to look at Judah and Israel, and, and they're not getting off. Their, their day is coming as well. And their problem is, you're going to declare through the prophet, you have fullness of food and idleness of time, and you don't care about the poor. It's so easy for us to get discouraged and distracted. But God, you want our eyes focused on you. Lord, I just pray that you would help us. For you are the one who is able to keep us from falling. You are the one who will present us faultless before the Lord God Almighty. For which we will give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.